This is the Home Bodies Yoga Podcast, and I'm Rebecca Hirsch, and this is our 25th episode. In this podcast, I ask people what they do when they unroll their yoga mat and tell you a little bit about what's going on on mine. If you have a question about your yoga practice or a suggestion for a guest, please email me at rebecca at homebodiesyoga.com. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at homebodiesyogapodcast. To find out more about each show, please go to our website, homebodiesyoga.com. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if where you're listening doesn't allow you to rate or review, please go over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review there. It really helps people find the show and helps me get an idea of who's listening and how many people are listening and um, helps the community to grow. So our podcast today is going to be a little bit different, and I'm a little nervous. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, because it's just me today. There's no interview. Um, It is the 25th episode, so my thought was I'll just kind of take every 25th episode and go through and talk about conversations that have really stuck with me and things that my guests have said that have really changed the way that I think about my own practice and just the yoga practice in general. Uh, and because this is the first, you know, set of 25, I thought I would start actually today by talking about uh, the background of this podcast. Um, my original idea and my original intent behind the podcast was that I would do a question and answer podcast where people would write in questions and I would answer them or I'd have, you know, some of my yoga friends come on and help me answer them questions about their practice. Like, you know, well, what does this pranayama do? Or like, why do you bend your knee in warrior two? Things like that. And I had, a, you know, a good first episode where I interviewed Whitney Walsh. Um, and I had her help answer a question about hypermobility. And then when I went through and I was listening to her and listening to the interview, I realized that the most compelling part of the interview was not her answer to the question, even though it was brilliant, like she is so smart about um, the yoga practice that her answer was really good. What I found actually really compelling though was when she was talking about what her practice was like these days. And I realized that maybe that that was the podcast. Um, (laughs) So I kind of switched things up really kind of, you know, had a big pivot kind of last minute right before I published the first three episodes, just realizing that I wanted to talk and instead of sort of answering questions i really wanted to just talk to yogis i admire about their practice and that has stayed compelling for me um i don't know about you but you know um i'm still really interested in talking to people about it and i find it really it opens people up in a new way um or you know that's what i think i don't know i don't know (laughs) it seems immodest to say that but that i just think it's a good question to ask someone and it's not something i always hear uh, so yeah, so that's kind of a changed things. And, and in that interview with Whitney, she was talking a lot about, you know, her practice now postpartum with the baby and, um, just kind of how it's evolved. And she said one thing that really stuck with me. I'm actually going to read you the quote. Um, it was, if yoga was just about trying to achieve shapes, it would be a young person's game, but that's what's so great. If we stay open-minded and curious to what my body can do today, that allows it to last a lifetime. And I have definitely applied this to my own practice. Like, you know, um, instead of getting frustrated when my foot doesn't touch my head anymore, I'm just sort of curious about the body that I'm working with today and now and in this phase of my life. Um, But 
more than just in my practice, I've been kind of taking that approach to life. Like my, you know, fallback emotion when something isn't working is to get frustrated and annoyed. And, you know, there were many times when I was making this podcast where I would get frustrated and annoyed. And it, it really helped me to, instead of, you know, kind of diving into that frustration and annoyance, I would instead get curious, like, oh, I wonder how it works to fix the sound this way. Or, oh, I wonder how you build a website. Um, so yeah, so I, I really feel like that set the tone for me personally. And of course, you know, there have been a lot of rocky bumps and I've learned a lot about the tech stuff along the way. Uh, but a- another thing, and then, you know, I, I feel like there was also a lot of kind of, you know, just a big learning curve in general. And it really wasn't until the fourth, I think Imbal was the fourth episode when I interviewed Imbal where things kind of crystallized for me about what the bones of this podcast were. Like what, or I wouldn't even say bones, I'd say it was the heart, like the heart of this podcast. And I'm actually going to play you a clip right now because this is really what I think <laughs> It sounds funny. This is what my podcast, this is what I think the podcast is about. But in its heart, this is what I think the podcast is about. So I find that just giving myself that time in the morning before my day begins, before I take care of my child, before I do my office work, before everything, uh, it just gives me a sense of spaciousness um, and connectedness to myself, to my intentions, um, around, you know, how I want to do all these things that I do. I so deeply care about all these different aspects of my life. And I want to show up in such a, you know, the best way that I can. And to just take this time really makes a difference. It really makes a difference to just kind of focus on those things. There have been many times, um, during this podcast, you know, um, during COVID, during the reckoning that is happening right now around race in the US, where I've thought like, oh, gosh, this podcast is so selfish. Like, here I am just like talking about, you know, triangle pose and, and the world seems to be falling apart. Like, what am I doing? And every time I get down that start to unravel in that way, I go back and listen to this because I it can feel selfish, I think, taking an interest in, you know, having a practice of your own. And and maybe it's a yoga practice, maybe it's something else. But I think, like Imbal said, if if you deeply, deeply care about the things going on in your life, one way to actually show that is to um, do what you need to do to show up in the best way possible. And for her, it's that practice in the morning. Um, and, you know, there have been times where, you know, I let my son cry, not cry, but complain in his crib while I finish my meditation or finish my practice. And, and instead of feeling guilt, I just know that I'll be more present for him throughout the day. Um, yeah, so I, I I feel this deeply for myself, but also, you know, in the larger context of this podcast, I, I think really what it's about is the things people do to be, to show up in their lives the best way they can. And, you know, so many of the people I've interviewed have truly change the world and are changing the world and to hear what they do to prepare to do that I I think is just magic um yeah and you know another thing Imbal talked about in the interview that I really think about a lot is she really um 
don't know. I've always thought of her. I, I know her pretty well. And I've always thought of her as just so disciplined um, and, you know, someone who really takes her yoga practice seriously. But when I was talking to her, what I realized is she's actually really flexible too. And I think it's in that flexibility that she, that it's actually within the flexibility that enable the flexibility enables her to be um, more disciplined because um, she is really open to what she considers her yoga practice. You know, she talked about how when she was really interested in such setting nonviolent communication, you know, she considered that her yoga practice and it definitely is, but you know, I, I can be such a purist and th see things so black and white um, that sometimes if it's not me unrolling my mat, I don't think it counts. Uh, and that attitude, though, of being sort of open to what people's practices are has definitely helped me interview. Like, you know, sometimes an interview, interview, it's not just, you know, somebody's handstand practice that we're talking about. Like, we're talking about their life, you know, and whatever it is they do that makes them prepare and show up for their life. Uh, yeah, you know, one thing that also really sticks me with me from that inball interview is she talked about how when she was in, you know, the early stages of postpartum taking care of her son, how she really thought about that as her yoga practice um, and how, you know, she was really careful to put her phone away and just really be present in that time with her son. And that's something I still think about. Like if I don't have time to meditate and my meditation for the day is sitting on the floor and just, you know, really keeping an eye on Hudson, like really looking at him and letting that observation of my kid be my meditation, like that's it for the day. And I consider, you know, that a good meditation day. Or, um, you know, in the middle of the night when I go in his room, if he got like a little scared and he needs a cuddle, like really like being present for that. And yeah, I mean, it's really changed my parenting and it's changed the way I think about everything. You know, that sort of idea from Imbal that, you know, this broadening of the definition of what a yoga practice is uh, really changed the tra trajectory of this show and also of my life, honestly, especially as a parent. And actually, speaking of parenting, another uh, guest that I think about all the time is this woman, Mel Melanie Green, who actually I didn't meet before the show. Um, I interviewed Dia Penning, and Dia was like, afterward was like, you know who you really need to interview? My teacher, Melanie Green. And she was completely right. And one of the things that Dia suggested I talk to Melanie about was parenting. Um, and I I've been interested in this in, in talking about that for a while. So I was especially interested to talk about, to talk to someone that Dia recommended uh, because yeah, I don't know. The yoga sutras don't have a specific sutra about parenting and you know, your kid gets to a certain age and you're just like, well, what is my philosophy? Uh, so Melanie Green has been practicing Ashtanga yoga for over 20 years. She's been teaching for, I think, maybe she's been teaching over 20 years, been practicing even longer. So it was really good to hear uh, what someone who lives, you know, the yoga practice, who who really is seeped in yoga, uh, not just the, you know, the asana, but all of it. Uh, in all of yoga philosophy, like the way that she thinks about parenting. And, and I actually want to play you a clip from that interview right now. That be, the reason that I'm more becoming more interested in having kind of a philosophy of parenting is I think if you don't have a philosophy, you just do what you learned. Yeah. Even if I, you know, I thought like, okay, like, 
whatever, here I am, I'm my own person, my own parent. But the minute, I feel like the minute I'm like frustrated, I react in, you know, in a way I've learned. Um, So So I think one of the most helpful limbs for parenting is Pratyahara, just mm -hmm. exactly what you're saying. So if you don't have a philosophy, you're going to react. And that reaction is either going to be what you learned or the opposite of what you learned. Mm -hmm. But it's not going to be what you intentionally want to do unless you cultivate pratyahara, which is that pause, which is that moving away from all the senses, everything that pulls us into distraction, taking a breath and literally creating space between what just happened and how I'm going to be, how I'm going to hold this. And that's such a brilliant thing to teach. I think a teenager, a child, an adult is that to let them see you take a pause even. Cause a lot of the time it feels to me like it's so important to react immediately, but it's, it's not actually yeah. right. Isn't it such yeah. a good lesson to learn to pause before you act? Absolutely. It's that, it's that slowing down. And, you know, because if some, if your child does something and you immediately react, they're no longer sitting with what they've just done. They're sitting with your reaction. Mm-hmm. But if you pause they sit in their own whatever, you know, whether it's a decision they made or something they knocked over or a tantrum they had or what, depending on the age. But when we pause and kind of hold that space, they're in themselves. The moment we react, they're no longer in them. They're in us. They're now like, oh, I got to manage mom because she's angry or out of control. Isn't that so brilliant? Like, I'm just getting chills even re-listening to it. Like, well, one, the idea of a pause is definitely something I think about regularly and not just in parenting, um, you know, not just like right after Hudson, like dumps an entire, you know, thing of paint on the floor right after I scrub the whole kitchen or something like that. Definitely a good time to have a pause then, but also just in life to like take a minute especially these days, like, I feel like, you know, everyone's reactions to every single thing that happens in the world is so fast. And it's like, can you just take a pause and like, really think about what you think about it before, you know, I just, I feel like there's this pressure to always know what you think. Um, and, And for some people, maybe it's easy. But for me personally, I think I need to take a minute and really think about what I think. (laughs) Um, and, and definitely in my, you know, relationships, like to take that pause in that moment before I react, um, or even to my own thoughts. Um, I don't know. I have never thought of Pratyahara that way. And I don't know, it really connected to me. Um, and then the other thing she said about how, when you react, uh, your kid is no longer, sitting in what they've done, but instead they're sitting in your reaction. That has been huge. Um, I think as long the the mo the more I can stay sort of almost stoic and um, calm and still, the more that I think I don't even have to parent Hudson. Like he sort of takes care of himself. Like if I can just take a minute and let him think about what just happened very often he wants to remedy it. And of course he's too. So like his remedy is not always fixing it, but he wants to. And, you know, I think that's enough for a two-year-old. Uh, and even in my own relationships, you know, if somebody says something to you that's maybe a little bit rude or, or unkind, if you, instead of reacting, just sit 
you know, uh, very often people realize what they said and, or, you know, not even in a, in sort of a confrontational sense, but sometimes someone says something and the, I think the kindest thing you can do is be quiet and, you know, sort of unemotional and, and let them kind of, I don't know, uh, feel what it is they just said and like really hear it for themselves. Um, I, I don't know. I found it's making me a better listener and I think just better in relationships in general. That man, that pause. Uh, and actually, like in a way, the pause seems like un American or something, right? That we're always supposed to be like, go, 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 and always doing something and always. I don't know. It, it almost seems like, like I was saying, there is this like in pressure to re- always react and have your reaction ready. Um, yeah, there's something, uh, it almost feels like a rebellion against capitalism to pause <laughs> or like to, I don't know, or to sit in silence. I don't know. Did you guys see that uh, Bo Ber- Berman, Burham, Burning, Burnham, that comedian, he just put out a special, I think it's on Netflix, um, and he rec- it's like self-recorded during COVID in his own house, um, and he has a song where it's just basically like, can't we all just ever shut up for a minute about it, everything, uh, and I really think about that a lot, like, isn't it, I don't know, I think it can be such a gift to yourself and to others sometimes to just... I don't know, be quiet, which is a funny thing to say, considering I'm like talking your ear off here in my closet. But I don't know, hopefully, hopefully you see the hilarity in that. Anyway, um, yeah, so Melanie, uh, by the way, that was episode 20. If you haven't heard that podcast, that uh, episode, I really recommend it. Melanie is brilliant. In you know, another thing she really talked about, uh, so she's an Ashtangian you know, Ashtanga is a practice that you do the same exact practice six days a week. It, it can be very, it's very disciplined and it can also be, um, it can be, I don't want to say harsh, but it, it can be very strict, right? There are, are Ashtangis who really follow it to a T. Uh, and I had a really good time talking to Melanie because she kind of talked about how it's important to make the practice work for you. Uh, like I was saying, you know, kind of like what Whitney said, we're like, you know, staying curious and allowing your practice to evolve. So even though she's a Sashtangi, which is kind of known for being a more, I don't know how to say it besides specific practice, she was very like open to allowing it to also have some freedom. And she talked a lot about how your mat is this container and that it, within that container, you can find freedom. And and that it's the same with parenting, right? That as a parent, you create the container and your, your kids like kind of bump up against it. And that is in their own freedom, right? And that your job is to keep the container and their job is to look for freedom. And your job in your yoga practice is to, you know, keep the container of practicing, you know, daily or, or whenever you decide is important for you, uh, at every time, you know, sticking to that. And, and within that container, it can evolve and change, you know, and like I was saying with Imbal, like, you know, her practice has taken many roots and almost everyone I talk to or many different paths and almost everyone I talk to, you know, that their practice has taken paths. And I think maybe that is the path to longevity. You know, Estrude Castillo was talking about how at this point her practice, you know, she's been practicing more than 30 years is mostly mantra. Right. And, and so the container is there, right? She's still practicing, but she has this freedom to find other ways that help her connect, 
you know, to whatever you call it, God, yourself, whatever it is. Um, but I do feel personally that the physical part of it is something that, uh, is what's, it's something necessary for me to, uh, show up in my life, right? There's something about the physical practice that really prepares me in a way that, uh, sort of more intellectual practices don't. And actually, I think Jason Bowman in episode two really summed this up. So I'm going to play you a clip of what he said. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the axioms that we come to appreciate in the practice is that the state of the body is the state of the mind. And it's a lot easier to change the state of the body than it is the state of the mind. So we have this kind of shortcut into cognitive organization via the body. So in that sense, yeah, the and that's again what I kind of mean by the maintenance is the more I clean my body off in that way, um, the better I feel holistically. That's it. So going with that metaphor, would you say meditation is the way you clean your mind off? Yeah. Yeah. This is where Jason really introduced me to the phrase maintenance yoga, which I think about all the time, like uh, that my asana practice is very often a maintenance practice, right? Maintenance for my mind, maintenance for my spirit, my emotional body. Um, and I, I don't know if it's true for everyone, um, but it definitely is true for me that like, I'm such a physical learner that very often the way that I can, like Jason was saying, organize my thoughts and organize my self is through a physical practice particularly you know i think because i've been doing yoga so long I, maybe this would be true for a different physical practice that someone did but um i don't want to say it's mindless but it it's for, so familiar that i'm able to kind of settle into it and and settle my mind in it if that makes any sense at all um yeah so it, it really makes me less interested in trying wild new poses or, you know, occasionally I'll like a challenging pose, but really I'm in it for that cognitive organization, as Jason says. And it's just so true, right? Like the mind, body, and spirit are connected. And I think very often that can feel like more of a challenge, like a detriment, like, oh, <laughs> Every time, you know, for me, like every time I'm anxious about something, I also get nauseous. So great. So now I have a job interview and I'm nauseous <laughs> or, you know, whatever your thing is. Um, but if you think more like, oh, isn't it such a benefit that sometimes when my mind is going crazy, I can use my body to calm it. Um, and as far as the meditation piece and, you know, a few of my guests really talked about this, but in ball too. Uh, that meditation can kind of help clean the mind. I've definitely felt that way on days where I feel like my mind is out of control in a meditation practice where I cannot focus. Um, even then, it, those days actually, maybe in particular, are important for me to meditate because I feel like uh, my mind can process. That's something Imbal talked a lot about, like meditation, you know, even if you're not totally focused, can be this way to process things that your mind needs to process. Uh, that maybe, you know, you don't settle down enough for that to happen. Like you're, you're too busy thinking about like the exact, you know, the future or the past and, and to just be present. Sometimes the mind can kind of process through things. And, and in that way, you know, I go into my day much more calm. Um, you know, another thing that Jason really talked about a lot was um, how meditation is practice for being uncomfortable, right? That, you know, because in meditation, you know, very often, you, you know, I'll think about something that is kind of 
needs to get done and I can't do it or, you know, a gray area and I can't, you know, sort of find the solution. Um, but, but I think what meditation teaches you to do is sit through that, you know, and kind of going back to even the pause, the pratyahara that Melanie talked about, it's, you know, meditation really teaches you to sit in, in some level of discomfort and, and isn't that life, right? Um, I always think about this, you know, the Ashtanga practice, a lot of the poses are five, you know, you stay five breaths. So sometimes I'll be in an uncomfortable situation and I just take it five breaths at a time. You know, <laughs> here I am like waiting for results of this test or here I am, you know, uncomfortable in this conversation. Like, can I just, can I do five breaths here? Okay, how about five more? <laughs> or maybe after five, it's over if I'm lucky. Uh, but I, I do think that pause, that ability to be comfortable and, and pause, it, I don't know, revolutionary to me. Speaking of revolutionary, something I think about a lot is my interview with Dia Penning, that's episode 18, uh, where she talks about lots of things. But one of the things she talks about is her anti-racism work. And part of her work is just teaching people to be uncomfortable. So in her restorative yoga classes, you know, she'll put you in a really yummy restorative pose and then read something that is uncomfortable about race. Or, you know, she teaches workshops about anti-racism where she'll, you know, have people seated and and just walk them through listening to something really uncomfortable. You know, it could be about animal cruelty, it could be about race, whatever. Uh, Just so that people learn to be in those uncomfortable places, which I think is just so important, especially for white people like myself, to learn to be uncomfortable. Because the thing is, uh, in many circumstances, I can be totally comfortable and my life wouldn't would be fine being silent. And for me to do this anti-racism work that I'm obligated to do as a human and as a yogi, I need to learn how to be uncomfortable. Um, and this has come up in my life actually a few times now um, and where I've thought back to Dia, you know, teaching me to be uncomfortable and, and the importance of this meditation practice to learn to be uncomfortable and all that. Uh, it, yeah, it just comes up a lot and it's such important work that she's doing. So again, if you haven't taken her class, you really should. But anyway, also that episode is episode 18. Um, but another thing in that interview with Dia that I think about a lot is her just ability to be completely vulnerable and disarming um like well here i'll just play it um, and then i also also because of the the optics of yoga in the west and i just didn't fit you know so um it's it's a practice that i have participated in for my own growth and my own um my own comfort um I do think that part of, if I'm being honest, part of what attracted it, attracted me to it was the the optics of it. Was it that, you know, that, that idea of like assimilating into that world of beauty that everyone wants to attain, um, even though it was not something that was attainable to me, I think being adjacent to it somehow made me, you know, had, I had certain feelings about it. I haven't totally unpacked it, but um the work that I've been doing in the yoga teacher trainings and since I graduated from teacher training really has been about how yoga philosophy and the history of yoga are so closely tied to change, social change. I mean, even though yoga is a practice for internal reflection and, um, and 
uh, personal liberation, it is directly tied to the liberation of others. And, um, there's just so much about that part of the interview that I love. Like one, that she's willing to just be open about being, wanting to be like a part of like the beautiful crowd. Because I think, you know, if I'm being honest, that's part of the reason I got into yoga is I just wanted to be like, you know, a thin, beautiful yoga teacher who is like total peace and like looks very good in a crop top. Do you know what I mean? Um, I just like wanted that. And I have a lot of shame around it because now I realize that yoga is so much more than that. And it's given me so much more. Like it feels sort of like, I don't know, uh, getting really interested in someone because they're beautiful and then realizing they're also amazing. I mean, I guess that happens all the time. I don't know. I just have this shame around it because, you know, I started doing yoga because I wanted to be like smaller and um, more fit and more beautiful and be more glowing and you know, I just realized that there's so much more to it now, like so, so much more. It's so much deeper. And I feel, I don't know, sometimes the roots of something, if they're, if the, the, you know, start of something or the roots of something aren't the way I'd like, I I think of it as not as good, like, you know, because I started yoga not to be a better person or more whole or whatever, that maybe it's not as good. And, And it was just, I don't know, it felt, uh, I felt such a connection with Dio when she shared that. Um, and I don't know, almost like a relief that she could be so deep and brilliant and that she could also be fucked up by our culture's standards of beauty, <laughs> you know? Um, and then just in that, the juxtaposition of her saying that, that, you know, there's these physical properties of wanting to be in this like crowd or the physical part of yoga. And then, you know, also that, damn it, yoga is a revolution, <laughs> you know, that the, like yoga is actually, you know, made to change the world and, and to teach people to change the world. Um, you know, and, and both things are true and that's so yogic too, right? That two opposite things can be true and that we have to get comfortable with that. <laughs> right? What is that yoga sutra? Uh, yeah, siram, siram sukhamasanam, right? The, every pose, every way you connect to the earth has to be moved both easeful and disciplined, right? Two opposite things. And that comfort in being comfortable with two things being true at the same time. Like, isn't that like the goal of peace or whatever? <laughs> or, or not whatever, or actually. Um, yeah, and, and you know, actually when I've, it's something that's been coming up for me a lot in, in this podcast is just realizing like how connected yoga for better or worse to me is to my issues with body image and and all of that um and really you know working myself to try to disconnect them you know michelle young long talking about her you know similar start to yoga being like a bikram instructor and just how you know over the years she's been practicing more than 20 years that's changed for her because no, no, now she's had a lot of health issues and just how now her yoga practice is the opposite of that, right? It's this place to, I don't know, feel comfort and accepted in her body. That episode is episode 15, also a really good episode. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I just feel like that's been coming up a lot. And in, in my dealing with like body image stuff, I've really to separate that from my yoga practice has been really helpful because I'm getting better and better at giving myself what I need during my practice time, right? Allowing, giving myself freedom within my yoga mat, like I was talking about with Melanie Green. Um, 
And one thing that has really given me freedom is interviewing people about, you know, who, who are experts in different fields of study. Uh, one was Becca Andrew talking to her about uh, women's cycles and, or I guess, I'm sorry, people cycles um, and how, you know, if you have a menstrual cycle, how you change throughout the month. And just even just hearing that, you know, my body is changing every day through the month was so helpful for me in understanding why I prefer practices some days over others, right? Like it's like not that I'm lazy or not that I, I can't focus or, or whatever, but that, you know, my body is constantly changing and it's okay to sort of listen to it. Uh, one thing I really took away from that, which I actually don't even think it made it on to the interview, but one thing she said was that like, if you don't take a break on the day or, you know, day one or day two of your period, that later on you could get tired, right? That like kind of it's a day to um, rest and, and conserve energy. So even if you feel okay, it's still good to rest, which goes against like totally everything I, you know, in my heart and soul, I obsess about, right? That like, even if you feel okay, it's like good to take a break. Uh, and I've been doing that. And I actually do notice then, you know, later on in my cycle, I feel like I have more reserves. So that's something to think about, I guess, maybe if you're a person who has a menstrual cycle. Um, and then, of course, talking to Kamiko Shibata uh, in episode 21 about Ayurveda, which is just this sort of study of life looking at uh, life through the elements. Um, and it's this idea of each dosha or element being predominant in a person, just, you know, the way they're born. And then, you know, throughout your life, perhaps different um, elements have kind of more sway uh, and are balanced or imbalanced depending um, but you know things that she said that just really simplified things for me was like you know like one thing was like being the most fit isn't always the best for longevity that like if you're playing a long game and want your body to be well cared for your whole life that like being the most possible fit you can be right now might not actually be the most helpful, <laughs> uh, which was kind of nice to hear because I find myself like, you know, sometimes I'll be getting faster and faster and running or something. And I just notice that my body just stops wanting to run. And I feel like there's just like my balance, my body is like telling me it wants to balance itself. Uh, it feels like that sometimes. Um, yeah. And and, you know, talking to her too, I actually got a private consult with her, which I, I never told you guys about, but it was really great. And just a lot of it was so obvious. It felt silly, but I did need someone to tell me like, you know, I was telling her sometimes I just feel really overwhelmed. And when I get overwhelmed, I get agitated and I just get like so overwhelmed. And she was like, well, do you have a lot going on? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, well, do you like not have a lot of time to myself yourself? And she was like, no. And and I was like, no. And she was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe like you should do that. Like maybe in the afternoon, you need like 10 minutes with something over your eyes and your ears and just have quiet with your legs up the wall. And it felt insane to me. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. Like what a prescription. Thank you. Um, like, oh, maybe you're feeling overwhelmed because you are overwhelmed. One thing I share with Kamiko in the interview is um, I kind of have always had a bad taste in my mouth about Ayurveda um, going back to like the body image stuff because I worked at a yoga studio where the owner uh, clearly had some body issues of their own, but would kind of use uh, the different um, 
the different doshas to body shame, like would, would really like talk kind of negatively about um, kapha energy and like kapha people as though like there was something wrong with being bigger and, you know, kind of like always would imply that I was kapha, even though, I mean, like I, not that I even need to like whatever, but I was like a size two to four. So like a really insane, like true, like, you know, body dysmorphia through, you know, they had their own issues and definitely seeped into me, uh, which is actually something I always think about as a yoga teacher. Like you got to deal with your own shit because you do not want to put it on your students. Anyway, that's a different conversation. We'll talk about that another time. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I, this is uh Kamiko's reaction, which I just like truly, truly loved. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one thing that also comes to mind in terms of Tipta and in terms of this like doing as though doing is more. The thing is that of the three doshas, Pitta lends itself the best to capitalism, mm. right? And so we have this sort of societal drive that we should do more, that we should achieve more, that we should get letters by our names, that we should run farther, faster, higher is better, you know, mm-hmm. and so I think we're really like, in terms of the Vata Pitta of society, I think that we're very out of balance Vata, air and ether, lots of movement, ideas, people feeling anxious, scattered, dry. The internet is like this Vata thing, like you open a screen, you open a screen, you can't quite finish or focus on anything, right? And this also this sort of lack of commitment, like you can order anything you want and return anything you want. And so that's very sort of vata of like where the mental spaces and the society, I think also since COVID, the amount of fear and anxiety, which is very vata, has gone through the roof, right? But we celebrate pitta. Mm-hmm. Oh, the more you do, the more you achieve, the faster you run, the more, more, more is better because that lends itself to this capitalistic model. Right. And then we give poor Kafas a hard time, like to be slower. Nobody wants to be slower or bigger. But actually, that's really the most balanced in a lot of ways. And people with people, Kafa people tend to live the longest, have the highest fertility because they have the most water and earth element, which is like this juicy, juicy stability that doesn't burn out the way that our sort of our Pitta energy does. So I feel like it's. And speaking of capitalism, I think about this conversation I had with Callie Bateman in episode 20 a lot here. Listen to this. Yeah, no, I, I mean, it always comes back. I feel like it always comes back to hating capitalism on the show, but like, it's <laughs> there's something so infuriating about capitalism that what it did was take wellness practices that should make everyone feel good, like asana or even like Pilates, right? And turn them into these, this way, you know, the, the way they're packaged to us is like, do this so you look better. And then we listen to that. And then the only way we think of doing it is to look better. And it's just so infuriating. Um that somebody can ruin you from the inside, your physical body, that somebody can fuck that up. Like it's. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And I mean, speaking of like, of, of disembodiment and embodiment, like me feeling disembodied allowed me to look in the mirror and see only how I looked and not at all how I felt like Mm. I, and I, I'm now like, I've like learned intuitive eating and I'm I'm much more able now to like think about how eating something will make me feel and have that be the the basis and and like and actually like you know I 
I find myself more beautiful now than I did when I was at the worst and at the skinniest point of my eating disorder. And I feel really grateful for all that. And it, I think about that quote from Hallie a lot when I'm looking in the mirror and I'm like not happy with how I look is I try to, instead of seeing how I look, I try to see how I feel, right? Like even if I look tired, it's like, oh, I feel tired. And then I can be sort of sweet to myself like, oh yeah, Hudson was up for a while last night or oh yeah, I couldn't sleep. Oh yeah, I feel tired. Or, you know, trying to see, I don't know, see how, how I feel, looking in the mirror and seeing how I feel instead of I look, it's just, I don't know, I love it. Uh, and there was so much from the Hallie interview that I think about a lot. And, and one was just the importance for her of doing things uh, for no reason, like for no profit or no likes or no whatever, like how important it was for her as an artist to have hobbies that, you know, on the surface don't have any reason. And, and that was actually something Kamiko said in our interview, too. She said the way she put it was try not to turn your passions into chores, and I think that a lot too, like there's this importance of like just doing things for the good of it, for the joy of it, for the fun of it, for the whatever of it without like worrying about there being some kind of like a physical manifestation that you're doing it right, like money or, or accolades or whatever. Um, accolades, like who uses that word? I'm clearly getting tired. I've been talking a long time, you guys. Uh, yeah. And um yeah, and, and then, of course, there are, like, tons of nuggets from Hallie Bateman's book, Directions, that I think about a lot. One I think about a lot is one piece of advice that I think is really important, especially now that things are opening up, that she says in the book is, the minute you think you wonder if you have time to go to the bathroom, go. I thought that a lot of times. I have to say it's, like, really saved me. It sounds so It sounds so simple, but, you know, like it sounds simple until you have to pee really bad and you're stuck in a situation, in which case it's the most dire situation of your life. So thank you, Hallie, for that bit of advice. <laughs> um, another one I really liked from her book is she says, write down your daydreams, night dreams, and things you say in conversation. Sometimes making art is just paying attention. Um, and of course, I like that for like the yogic aspect, but like, yeah, you know, isn't so much of it, isn't all of this just paying attention? Isn't that everything in this podcast, right? It's like learning how to pay attention and be and be present for all of it, whether it's wonderful or challenging, you know, because sometimes the wonderful is to be, pre sometimes it's just as hard to be present for the wonderful as it is to, for the challenging. Um, you know, anyway, I could read more of her book, but you should just go buy it, um, Directions by Hallie Bateman. And we're coming to about the end, but I wanted to give you just some rapid fire podcasting info uh, just to, if you're interested in anything I've learned as a podcaster, uh, the first note I have is that interviewing's hard, um, just facts. Uh, it's definitely something I've had to read books on and I'd love to take a class, but it's different than talking because there is a real, it's almost, I sometimes almost feel like I'm like a, a cattle herder for someone else's thoughts where like people are kind and they, what they want to do is give you what you want and share their story. But, um, they really need to be sort of herded in the direction you want them to go because people have, you know, a lot to say about their lives. Uh, and what they're looking for, I think from an interviewer is, uh, to herd. <laughs> so I think of myself as like a sheepdog basically in interviews. Um, also, if you ever get to see a sheepdog in New Zealand, sheepdogs working in New Zealand, coolest thing ever, highly recommend it. They probably have sheepdogs at their places, but that's where I saw them. Definitely getting loopy over here. Um, and then uh, the other thing is save everything on the cloud, 
which I didn't even do. Um, so I guess the other advice would be have a partner that knows you. I don't save anything. I don't even know how to save. So I don't even, I'm not sure what the cloud is to be 100% honest, but uh, once we were away and I thought I posted a, a interview and I actually didn't, I like forgot to click the button, but we were away and I was like, Oh no, I don't have my computer. It's over. And Evan came in like a he- true hero and had saved all my stuff in the cloud without me knowing, which Get yourself a partner that knows your weaknesses. Maybe that's the real advice there. Um, but yeah, save everything and try to click the actual button. Like make sure your T's are crossed. That's I'm not great at that, but with technology, like you really have to dot the I's, cross the T's. So I like really make myself sit down and double check things now. Um, what else have I learned? Let me look at my notes. Oh, Levelator, you need it. You might think you don't need it. If you're not podcasting, it doesn't matter. Don't look into Levelator if you podcast or do anything audio. You need it, you think you don't, but you need it, okay? It's free, just do it. Um, oh, and then the other thing is I have to learn a lot. I have to learn a lot in interview, going back to interviewing of like, um, so like I don't like making people uncomfortable and that's not really the aim of this show, right? Like I, I have a kind of, I have a more gentle approach and and what I'm interviewing about really are things people are interested in. So like, it's not like hard hitting. I'm not trying to trap anyone, but I do think there is a balance of like, sometimes I have to ask questions that I feel uncomfortable asking and maybe my guest is totally comfortable, but like going back to that whole meditation thing of like learning to be uncomfortable, that's like a big part of podcasting for me is like asking personal questions that I might feel uncomfortable asking and just letting people know if they want to answer I'll just cut it out actually even just saying that to to people I interview now is really helpful like hey if you don't feel like answering questions say no and I'll cut it out you know it won't sound weird or anything like that and I think that gives me license as much as them where I now I feel comfortable asking things because I know it's fine you know between us if I do I'll just cut it um yeah so those are some things I've learned and I actually I think I'm going to take us out on with one final selection from Brema that I think about a lot. And I think, you know, maybe it's something for you to think about in the next two weeks of being in the center of your circumstance. Like, I think now that things are reopening, it's so easy to get pulled to the past or the future. But like just being the here and now and like letting yourself be in this moment this summer. Uh, And so I'll play that for you now. And happy practicing. And I'll talk to you in two weeks. Bye. Katana Yoga community, be at the center of my circumstance or stay at the center of my circumstance. And what I mean by that is, you know, um, it, it's really funny because yoga, when I first started practicing it, it was like this. I treated it like I need to go get my yoga fix because when I go to yoga, I sweat, I breathe hard. And depending on, you know, where I was taking class or doing it at home, Maybe I chant, I meditate, and oh my God, I feel so restored, rejuvenated, replenished. And that's actually the romanticized version of yoga. Because the the real experience of yoga, as I've had it in my own body, in my own mind, is it tends to allow us to feel that much more deeply what we were already feeling, what we were already experiencing. And so when we try to use it to get away from what's really there, it's like we work against ourselves. And so um, what I find is that in my yoga practice, I can have whatever my feelings are. 
because part of the the air quote sensitivity is like, oh my God, I have all these feelings. And oh my God, I feel overwhelmed by them. And oh my gosh, someone else around me has their feelings. I had my feelings, but now that person has their feelings too. Did I handle my feelings? How do I feel about myself to be able to be with someone else and how they feel about themselves without conflating the two? Without allowing myself to in some way be um, penetrated by someone else's experience, without me internalizing how someone else is living life with their challenges that I can empathize without internalizing um, that, that it can be possible to have compassion and have boundaries at the same time. 